Hello and welcome back to another episode of After This. Uh, this is the greatest unification podcast on the entire internet, and that's an objective empirical fact that I can't prove. So, uh, my name is Daniel. My name's Carla. And I'm Shannon. And uh, this week we're going to be continuing our Republic episode, so please take us away, Shannon. All right, so we got halfway through Plato's The Republic last week. So we'll just get straight back into the the good old juicy stuff at the start of book number six. Sounds good. Oh, can't wait. So is there any kind of recap we can do? What what was the last thing that happened that they rambled about? Oh, that was the one about the Guardian men being able to like have sex with the best Guardian women or something, wasn't it? Isn't that what? Yeah, I mean? Gen X. Uh, the, yeah, that's yeah, right. Gen X. Um, it does. So pretty much, they just sort of like. Hang on, the best way for me to describe it is they were sort of getting together to talk about um, the four forms of, like, a man and sort of, like, governments, and then they were sort of, like, interrupted and went Uh, on to another little tangent. So I don't think it's too important that we, like, summarise it. We sort of pick... It sort of picks itself back up and then goes on to explain the um, the just city again and then back into the just man and explaining justice. So it's it's like one of those, there's like three or four different loops that just come back around. Yep. This yep. Socrates just loves talking. It doesn't flow amazingly well. It just like, this is this, this is this. Oh, this. we're talking about this thing now. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those, it's one of those things. Is what, I've, what I've actually learned from like... Um, like Plato's um, philosophy in this book, like in how he does things, is like he he knows the entire, like he's already got this city made up and he just mm. lures people into explaining it because he loves the sound of his own voice. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to start like doing exactly this and, and sucking <laughs> people into this. So I'm really, really glad I like <laughs> You need to invent Socrates. So it's, like, it's like Shannon Socrates. Yeah. So the guy who said the things that you're thinking. <laughs> I'll just add a bit of extra modern day pizzazz and it can be called like the shock factor. <laughs> All right, take us away on book six. Socrates goes on to explain why philosophers should rule the city. They should do so since they are better able to know the truth and since they have the relevant practical knowledge by which to rule. The philosopher's natural abilities and virtues prove that they have what is necessary to rule well. They love what is rather than what becomes. They hate falsehood. They are moderate. They're courageous. They're quick learners. They have good memory. They like they like proportion since the truth is like it and they have a pleasant nature. Adimantus objects that actual philosophers, philosophers are either useless or bad people. <laughs> <laughs> Dis- hard disagree. <laughs> Socrates responds with an analogy of the ship of state to show that philosophers are falsely blamed for their uselessness. Like a doctor who does not beg patients to heal them, the philosopher should not plead with people to rule them. To the accusation that philosophers are bad, Socrates responds that those with the philosopher's natural abilities and with outstanding natures often get corrupted by a bad education and become outstandingly bad. Thus, someone can only be a philosopher in the true sense if he receives the proper kind of education, after a discussion of the sophists as bad teachers. Socrates warns against various people who falsely claim to be philosophers. Since current political regimes lead to either the corruption or the destruction of the philosopher, he should avoid politics and lead a quiet, private life. Socrates then addresses the question of how philosophy can come to play an important role in existing cities. Those with philosophical natures need to practice philosophy all of their lives, especially when they are older. The only way to make sure that philosophy is properly appreciated and does not meet hostility is to wipe an existing city clean and begin it anew. Socrates concludes that that the just city and the measures proposed are both for the best and not impossible to bring about. Socrates proceeds to discuss the education of philosopher kings. The most important thing philosophers should study, 
philosophers, not philosophers. The most important thing philosophers should study is the form of the good. Socrates considers several candidates for what the good is, (laughs) such as pleasure and knowledge, and he rejects them. He points out that we choose everything with a view to the good. Socrates ex- Socrates attempts to explain what the form of the good is, though the analogy of the sun, through the analogy of the sun. As the sun illuminates objects so the eye can see them, the form of the good renders the objects of knowledge knowable to the human soul. As the sun provides things with their ability to be, to grow, and with nourishment, the form of the good provides the objects of knowledge with their being, even though it itself is higher than being. Socrates offers the analogy of the divided line to explain the form of the good even further. He divides a line into two unequal sections once, and then into two unequal sections again. The lowest two parts represent the visible realm and the top two parts, the intelligible realm. I kind of want to do a Sean Connery voice for this now. Yeah, do it. (laughs) (laughs) In the first of the four sections of the line, Socrates places images and shadows. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Sean, philosophers. No, I can't do that the whole way. (laughs) In the second section, visible... Okay, hold on, I'm going to start this again. I'll do my normal voice just so I can make sense of this section. In the first of the four sections of the line, Socrates places images slash shadows. In the second section, visible objects. In the third section, truths arrived at via hypotheses as mathematicians do. And in the last section, the forms themselves. Corresponding to each of these, there is a capacity of the human soul. Imagination, belief, thought and understanding. The line also represents degrees of clarity and opacity as the lowest sections are more opaque and the higher sections clearer. Alrighty, I'm definitely going to need you to explain that end part, Shannon. It's funny, I remember studying this at some point in some class at uni, but like I, it goes how much it sticks because I can't remember it at all anymore. <laughs> That's it's, because you're stuck in that opaque section, Daniel. Clearly, <laughs> I am. Zero sections. I'm opaquely. Like, like, like the only way the only way I can actually explain this to you, like properly, Daniel, is if you start practicing spirituality with me, so you can like get on that like higher chakra vibration levels and. Or, or I need to become an insane eugenics bang theory guy like Plato, <laughs> and then maybe I'll get to the same space. Just different doors, you know. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> all right so i'm reading i read this bit at the beginning it's interesting what he's talking about basically saying that like philosophers would be great but philosophers would be great as kings but the government inherently corrupts them anyway is that basically what they said because it sounds like the government says socrates warns against various people who falsely claim to philosophers since current political regimes lead to either the corruption or the destruction of the philosopher he should avoid politics and lead a quiet life so it's like i'd love to have philosophers and rulers but as soon as they become rulers they get corrupt seems to be what he's saying so it's like he can't kind of have them <clears throat> and and i think it's i think it's the whole um while you're going through the path of like becoming a philosopher as well you can't have these thoughts plaguing your mind you can't have this society and all these like emotions and rulings going on because it, it plagues the clarity of your thought in order for you to get the clear picture of said philosopher mind that socrates is saying should be the ruler of the city Mm. that must be achieved before you can do it if it's corrupted beforehand it's just so i gotta i want to go back through this form of the good thing that he talks about as the sun provides things to be in nourishment forms of the good can you explain form of the good shannon because i sort of understood this end part but honestly it was pretty pretty dense it's pretty. It is pretty dense. Or Carla, if you admit reading all of that. No, I didn't understand it, it either. Because <laughs> obviously, when he's talking about forms, like he was saying, singular form before, he means a truth, mm. so like a singular reality, which actually ties well into quantum physics. But <laughs> I, um, in this case, we're thinking there's but some kind of good. 
form, but is that um, meaning he's trying to turn things into the best version of themselves? This is, I think this is just going back to, um, I think the form of good is just going back to that ideal society of like, because um, I didn't, I didn't quite put as much like thought into these middle sections of the book as I did, did the end of it. But mm-hmm. from what I'm gathering from like the forms of good is um, the Republic, I guess this is just more so going towards the end is essentially like the, he's trying to ex- use both ethics and politics mm-hmm. to, to, um, to be the same thing almost yeah. like, mm-hmm. all right, because if we have a just city, we have, we can have a just person and that's how he's trying to explain everything. So reforms of good. Mm-hmm. I guess that's the interesting thing, isn't it? It's basically, it's, it's the, it's the realization that the people are a reflection of the system that they live in. Yes. So the thing is, and maybe that was an early recognition of that. Maybe before mm. the Republic and before these things, that connection hadn't quite been illustrated in that way. Or is it something maybe we're more aware of now? Um, at the time, it was probably a big deal that, you know, you're realizing that if you have a crappy system in a crappy society in a crappy city, you're probably going to have crappy people. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And cool. And and I think it's just because as well because he's so having to use the yeah this analogy of the city to yeah, as I said it's, it's just about um justice and being a just person mm. and being a just person is that complete good and is that complete thing and from that absolute completion is um you you, you find happiness mm-hmm. but mm. you can only achieve that through a pure philosophical mind of goodness, what is good and how to, how to do that. So I guess with all these like shadows and the light thing is like some people might come across, Hey, this is really good, but behind the scenes are actually doing not so good things to achieve that. And mm. I think it's just, that's, just, that's, that's just what I've, what, what I've taken. Like good on the whole, face of it. But yeah, yeah. There, but there is a whole depth thing. And I guess that's just like, what we were saying in the last week's episode about how the unjust man is happier if he hasn't been caught. Yeah, so, right. Like, of course. So yeah, it's. I guess it's just. I guess it's just. Um, yeah, just dense, pure goodness of like on that in, on that deep level mm. of like awesome. of what you'd need to do. And um, yeah, so now. Um, We'll start off with like book number book number seven now, and um, we've actually actually hosted an episode of this in the past. That's the good old uh, allegory of the cave coming back to say good day again. Greatest hits. <laughs> this is a fun right. one. This is, this is uh, <laughs> woo. Um, all right. Socrates continues his discussion of the philosopher and and the forms with the third analogy, the allegory of the cave. The, this represents the philosopher's education for ignorance. Wait, sorry, it, not, says, oh no, it says analogy now. Yeah, I know, I know. Is it's it an allegory, allegory. It's very, very similar. Very yeah. similar. Like, it's true, know, actually, yeah. <laughs> you, know, you know, we're going to have to get a um, an ing- in linguistics expert in to like, <laughs> absolutely pick me apart. But, you know. <laughs> we don't want one of them. We'll all get destroyed. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, keep going. Sorry. <laughs> this represents the philosopher's education from ignorance to knowledge of the forms. True education is turning around of the soul from shadows and visible objects to a true understanding of forms. So I guess... No, no, you've got a comment, that's fine. Um, So I guess that's sort of like what we're saying by um, the the true forms is like um, before it almost answers what you were... Like you, yeah, you're, you're really trying to see what it really is, rather than just what the face of it is. Yeah, yeah. No. <clears throat> Philosophers who accomplish this understanding will be reluctant to do anything other than contemplate the forms, but they must be forced to return to the cave and rule it. <laughs> I like that. Go <laughs> <laughs> own your shit like, now. When they achieve enlightenment, they're just going to want to sit around and be enlightened. But no, <laughs> tell people what to do. It's like, well done. Go back down to the crap pile. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it sucks down there. <laughs> back to the pile. Back to the pile. <laughs> 
Socrates proceeds to outline the structure of the philosopher king's education so that they can reach an understanding of the forms. Those who eventually become philosopher kings will initially be educated like the other guardians in poetry, music, and physical education. Then they will receive education in mathematics, arithmetic, and number, plane geometry, and solar geometry. Following these, they will study astronomy and harmonics. Then they will study dialectic, which will lead them to understand the forms and the form of the good. <clears throat> I love it how harmonics is like above the stars. <laughs> like, it's funny because he's basically, like you can see that's kind of the summary of what the form of the good is. You're basically, if you learn everything, you know how everything works, mm. you're not going to misunderstand things, so you will inherently be able to understand the form of the good. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Back to school, Daniel, for you, mate. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Socrates gives uh, a partial explanation of the nature of dialectic and leaves Glaucon with no clear explanation of its nature or how it may lead to understanding. Then they discuss who will receive this course of education and how long they are to study these subjects. The ones receiving this type of education need to exhibit the natural abilities suited to a philosopher, as discussed earlier. After the training in dialectic, the education system will include 15 years of practical political training to prepare philosopher kings for ruling the city. Socrates concludes by suggesting that the easiest way to bring the just city into being would be to expel everyone over the age of 10 out of an existing city. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, yeah, I mean, if you want to do anything with anywhere, just get rid of all the adults and tell the kids, like, oh, no, this is what the reality is now. Begin the indoctrination. <laughs> <laughs> so this is... A, this is all the time, basically. Sounds like we've got the gaslight anthem going right now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I mean, yeah, he's not wrong. That would be a good way. To, you go, you're just going to have a whole lot of people People dead, but you know, yeah. Daniel, <laughs> <laughs> I just thought that, thought of this. This would be like a really, really good promo for the Young World Federalists. <laughs> <laughs> Spell all the people over the age of ten from the planet. <laughs> oh man! I mean, look, I'm not going to say it wouldn't work. <laughs> I think I'm going to say it wouldn't work. Is <laughs> <laughs> theoretically I mean, like? Kids are not that. I don't know. That would, yeah, no. It's going to be a lot. Uh, well, I don't know even why we're talking about it, but. <laughs> <laughs> you probably even want to start younger than 10. You probably want to just kidnap like a bunch of babies and yep. begin the indoctrination from birth. See, Carla knows. Because, <laughs> like, by 10, you have Carla a personality. Carla is our kidnap queen. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, think, I think by the age, I think it's funny. I think, I think age 10. People are still very much looking for making sense of things. They've just got mm. ideas of their own, but you can, you know, they're, they're changeable. True. But, you know, this is where, this is child soldier territory we're walking into. So that's pretty fun. <laughs> it reminds me of the, I think it was Skinner, the psychologist. Was it Skinner? I'm going to look it up. Um, that Skinner box. Yeah, but the, the one I'm looking for was um, basically claiming that if, if he could grab a bunch of kids, he could turn them into whatever he wanted by yep. using his his theories. Uh, there was, was a scary? really there was a really oh. old um there's a really old quote that was just give me the boy and I'll give you the man. Um, the whole yes. thing there was a um the the word it's funny it's a bit of a digression but the word assassin actually um, stems from a word called hashashin. Um, and hashashin <laughs> hashishin. <laughs> no, no, that is literally what it was. What they do is they give people tons this is like the earliest people that you'd call like professional assassins they gave them lots of hash basically like really strong hash so they wouldn't even care if they were going to get killed oh wow so they'd go in and they'd stab someone and they wouldn't even run away they'd just be so high and they'd, <laughs> and they'd get jumped but the guy was still dead and there was this crazy guy who lived in like the mountains in a monastery in central asia this is like a thousand 
the year 1000 or something like that. Like, Mm -hmm. and basically he'd have kids brought up and, um, the kids would basically get taken for a very young age, indoctrinated with religion and fed nothing but like food and hash. So they just go a bit nuts and then he'd make them into like assassins. And that's where Assassin's Creed actually got its original story from. Because there's the guy at the monastery who runs the assassins. Oh, man. That's where the original term assassin came from, was from the Hashashans. Because you never knew if a guy was going to turn up high off his face and just stab you because he didn't care if he got caught. (laughs) So, yes. An extension. Yeah, yes. I've always, this is a stupid tangent, but I've always thought it'd be like very easy to kill someone if you don't care about getting caught. Yes, and that's like, the whole thing between extremely. like suicide bombers and stuff. Yeah, that's, that's a nice little bit of insight there, Carl. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've never thought of that before. <laughs> not, not going camping anywhere remotely, remote with you. <laughs> Why is no one else coming on the trip, Carl? Why don't we have a trip? <laughs> Does anybody want to go for a guilt-free camping trip with me? (laughs) (laughs) Just me and my lucky knife. (laughs) (laughs) No stabby stabby here. Surely not. Um, Anyway, we're going to um, book eight now. Um, Book eight and book nine sort of like tie in together. So as we sort of get to the end of it, we can do a little mini sort of review, but it does jump straight back into the same conversation onto the next ones. So without further ado, Socrates picks up the argument that was interrupted in book number five. Uh, just quickly, what was the argument in book number five? Just read ahead, Daniel, and then you'll... <laughs> <laughs> okay. you'll oh, that's fine. <laughs> All right. Glaucon remembers that Socrates was about to describe the four types of unjust regime. Oh, you're right, Shannon. Along, <laughs> along with their corresponding unjust individuals. <laughs> Socrates announces that he will begin discussing the regimes and individuals that deviate the least from the just city and individual and proceed to discuss the ones that deviate the most. The cause of change in regime is lack of unity in the rulers. Assuming that the city could just come into being, Socrates indicates that it would eventually change since everything which comes into being must decay. The rulers are bound to make mistakes in assigning people's jobs, yeah, assigning people jobs suited to their natural capacities, and each of the classes will begin to be mixed with people who are not naturally suited for the tasks relevant to each class. This will lead to class conflicts. The first deviant regime from just kin... Hold on. The first deviant regime from just kingship or aristocracy will be timocracy that emphasizes the pursuit of honor rather than wisdom and justice. The timocratic individual will have a strong spirited part in his soul and will pursue honor, power and success. This city will be militaristic. Socrates explains the process by which an individual becomes democratic. He listens to his mother complain about his father's lack of interest in honour and success. <laughs> it's always the I'm just trying fault, to provide a good life. I'm just trying to be nice. Why are you honourable and successful? <laughs> Those nagging females always ruining things. And I love that there's this guy who just feels really inadequate whose name's Tim, and that's where Tim Craddock <laughs> came from. So he's like, I'm going to fight everyone. The Timocratic's individual soul is at the middle point between reason and spirit. Oligarchy arises out of democracy and it emphasizes wealth rather than honor. Socrates discusses how it arises out of democracy and its characteristics. People will pursue wealth. It will essentially be two cities, a city of wealthy citizens and a city of poor people. I've heard that said about the US. The few wealthy the few wealthy will fear the many poor. People will do various jobs simultaneously. The city will allow for poor people without means and it will have a high crime rate. The oligarchic individual comes by seeing his father lose his possessions and feeling insecure, he begins to greedily pursue wealth. Thus he allows his appetitive part to become a more dominant part of his soul. 
The, oli- the oligarch individual soul is at the middle point between the spirited and the appetitive, appet- eh, appetitive part. Appetitive. 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 Yeah, right, thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> but welcome back to Shannon's phonic spelling of words. Let's play uh, Carla. <laughs> <laughs> Socrates I just love proceeds. to beatbox, what can I say? Yeah, <laughs> Socrates proceeds penultimately to discuss democracy. It comes about when the rich become too rich and the poor too poor. Too much luxury makes the oligarchs soft and poor revolt against them. In democracy, most of the political offices are distributed by lot. The primary goal of the democratic regime is freedom or license. People will come to hold offices without having the necessary knowledge and everyone is treated as an equal in ability, equals and unequals alike. The democratic individual continues to pursue all sorts of bodily desires excessively and allows his appetitive part to rule his soul. Sounds delicious. (laughs) (laughs) He comes about when his bad education allows him to transition from desiring money to desiring bodily goods and material goods. The democratic individual has no shame and no self-discipline. <laughs> Tyranny arises out of democracy when the desire for freedom to do what one wants becomes extreme. The freedom or license aimed at in the democracy becomes so extreme that any limitations on anyone's freedom seems unfair. Socrates points out that when freedom is taken to such an extreme, it produces its opposite, slavery. Dear God, this one's sounding relevant. the tyrant comes about by presenting himself as a champion of the people against the class of the few who are wealthy the tyrant is forced to commit a number of acts to gain and retain power accuse people falsely attack his kinsmen bring people to trial under false pretenses kill many people exit exile many people, and purport to cancel the debts of the poor to gain their support. The tyrant eliminates the rich, brave, and wise people in the city since he perceives them as threats to his power. Socrates indicates that the tyrant faces the dilemma to either live with worthless people or with good people who may eventually dispose, depose him and choose to live with worthless people. The tyrant ends up using mercenaries as his guards, since he cannot trust any of the citizens. The tyrant also needs a very large army and will spend the city's money and will not hesitate to kill members of his own family if they resist his ways. Pretty accurate description of tyrant, like a couple of yeah. No, it's funny that they sort of like talk about the drift that you kind of get between the different modes of governance, basically. Yeah. Like, it's not that... It's funny, because democracy in this instance, they're not really talking about the same thing exactly. It's no. kind of like... It's kind of like they're talking about every single office for every single thing is voted for. Mm. So then, like, you end up with just whoever people want. And I think the thing is, they also talk about... I think what they're also talking about is some of them are, like, random. Like It seems to be that, yeah. You're doing this. Oh, pull the name out of a hat. You're doing this kind of thing. Because that makes it equal, but then, yeah, obviously that's not necessarily a good way to run things either. No. Um, but then, yeah, the tyranny thing, pretty hard. Yeah, it's pretty, pretty on it. it it's, I, it's most interesting seeing the drift between democracy and tyranny because obviously that's the big focus we have nowadays. Um, what's you know what's coming apart and what's changing. Mm. <clears throat> um, yeah. Thought, so militaristic. Yeah, no, I thought this one was really fascinating, actually. We'll see how it blends into, like, book number number nine. Yeah, there you go. And then um, I might slap you in the face of a wet fish afterwards, then. (laughs) (laughs) The (laughs) e-fish. Socrates is now ready to discuss the, the tyrannical individual. 
He begins by discussing necessary and unnecessary pleasures and desires. Those with balanced souls, ruled by reason, are able to keep their unnecessary desires from becoming lawless and extreme. The tyrannical individual comes out of the democratic individual when the latter's unnecessary desires and pleasures become extreme, when he becomes full of eros or lust. The tyrannical person is mad with lust, and this leads him <laughs> to seek any means by which to satisfy his desires and to resist anyone who gets in his way. <laughs> Some tyrannical individuals eventually become actual tyrants. Tyrants associate themselves with flatterers and are incapable of friendship. <laughs> <laughs> Applying uh, the analogy of the city and the soul, Socrates proceeds to argue that the tyrannical individual is the most unhappy individual. Like the tyrannical city, the tyrannical individual is enslaved, least likely to do what he wants, poor and unsatisfiable and full of wailing and lamenting. This really sounds like Trump. <laughs> In all of this description. Um, the individual who becomes an actual tyrant of the city is the unhappiest of all. Socrates concludes that the first argument with a, rank, with a ranking of the individuals in terms of happiness, the more just one is, the happier. He proceeds to a second proof that the just are happier than the unjust. Socrates distinguishes three types of persons. One who pursues wisdom, another who pursues honour, and another who pursues profit. He argues that we should trust the wisdom lover's judgment in his way of life as the most pleasant, since he is able to consider all three types of life clearly. Socrates proceeds to offer a third proof that the just are happier than the unjust. He begins with an analysis of pleasure. Relief from pain may seem pleasant, and bodily pleasures are merely a relief from pain, but not true pleasure. The only truly fulfilling pleasure is that which comes from understanding, since the objects it pursues are permanent. Yeah. Socrates adds that, that only if the rational part rules the soul will each part of the soul find its proper pleasure. He concludes the argument with a calculation of how many times the best life is more pleasant than the worst. 729. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> I've measured good. <laughs> how many is it, Socrates? <laughs> Uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna. Not seven hundred, not seven hundred and thirty, not seven hundred and twenty-eight, seven hundred and twenty-nine. it was seven hundred and twenty-eight, but then he forgot one. And it's just like, <laughs> wait, hold on. <laughs> and then it was seven thirty, but he forgot and just said, "Nah, sorry, I double counted one." <laughs> it's just, oh, how could you calculate it? <laughs> Look, he was on the he was on the, he was on the good stuff back then, mate. So like he would have um he would have had the the it's, number come to him in a dream. A, it's interesting because this ties into um what later uh, I've talked I think I've talked about this before. Um, Epicurus, because Epicurus and Epicureanism is a famous term for being like uh, obsessed with luxury. Like you find mm. joy in luxury because he would always talk mm. about. Uh, the key thing for life and the key objective for what you should do and what you should do with yourself is pursue pleasure. Mm. And the thing is, everyone now glorifies that as a materialistic thing. There's actually a magazine called Epicurean and everything else, which is like completely misunderstanding because pleasure in his terms meant this, meant understanding and learning and material stuff was kind of side you know, it's a side thing. It's just funny because if you you will hear people in real life refer to being an Epicurean, mm. and they're completely misunderstanding it. Mm. <laughs> anyway, sorry, keep going. Oh, I will. Socrates <laughs> discusses an imaginary multi-headed beast to illustrate the consequences of justice and injustice in the soul, and to support justice. An imaginary multi-headed beast. So is that like a Hydra or Cerberus or something? Uh, it is, Daniel. 
<laughs> it's both of them. <laughs> and he's very, he's very, very scary. <laughs> uh, oh man, that whole description of tyrants being like the most unhappy and stuff, like it, it's very good. Mm. It wants and so fearful, wailing, enslaved, surrounding themselves with flatterers and incapable of friendship. Yeah, shit, I've seen that. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's nice and evident. All right, let's 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 um yeah, book ten. Waste no time. Book <clears throat> book X. <laughs> Therefore, suck. The planet Therefore... of books. Sorry. <laughs> no, I'm glad you interrupted me. I said the wrong word, so it's <laughs> uh... I'm working with you, Shannon. Oh yeah, oh, some someone's got to. I'm working against myself. Uh, thereafter, Socrates returns to the subject of poetry and claims that the measures introduced to exclude imitative poetry from the just city seem clearly justified now. Poetry is to be censored since the poets may not know which is... Wait, hold on. That weird sentence. Poetry is to be censored since the poets may not know which is, thus may lead the soul astray. Socrates proceeds to discuss imitation. He explains what it is by distinguishing several levels of imitation through the example of a couch. There is the form of the couch, the particular couch, and a painting of a couch. Well, that is actually illustrative. The, the, produ- oh, no. the products of imitation are far removed from the truth. Poets like painters are imitators who produce imitations without knowledge of the truth. Take that, uh, poets. It's yeah. where you're banned from our city. <laughs> <laughs> Socrates argues that poets had knowledge of the truth. They would want it to be people who did great things rather than remain poets. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, poets. Oh, you suck. Uh, Socrates. I get the the feeling that Socrates is like shitty at writing poems and a a bit tetchy about it. Sorry. <laughs> I, reckon, I reckon he's got such a rotting heart that, like, every time he's, like, gone to write a story about a flower or something like that, it's just, like, withered and petals have dropped. I'd more love <laughs> it, it than, beautiful, like, but... <laughs> I'd more like it that he had a crush on someone and, like, a poet stole the girl. Censor everything. They all suck. They're useless. <laughs> <laughs> and that's his whole philosophy based on... <laughs> <Yes>. <clears throat> Uh, wait, did we... Yeah, right, it's me again, isn't it? <laughs> the, the poet's knowledge is inferior to that of the maker of other products, and the maker's knowledge is inferior to that of the users. Now, Socrates considers how imitators affect their audiences. He uses a comparison with optical illusions to argue the, that imitative poetry causes the parts of the soul to be at war with each other rather than this rather th- oh my gosh i'm gonna have to start that bit again Stickle <laughs> illusions to argue that imit- imitative poetry causes the parts of the soul to be at war with each other and this leads to injustice the most serious charge against imitative poetry is that it even corrupts decent people he concludes that the just city should not allow such poetry in it but only poetry that praises the gods and good humans Imitative poetry prevents the immortal soul from attaining its greatest reward. Glaucon wonders if the soul is immortal and Socrates launches into an argument proving its immortality. Things that are destroyed are destroyed by their own evil. The body's evil is disease and this can destroy it. The soul's evils are ignorance, injustice and other vices, but these do not destroy the soul. Thus, the soul is immortal. Socrates points out that we cannot understand the nature of the soul if we only consider its relation to the body as the present discussion has. Socrates finally describes the rewards of justice by first having Glaucon allow that he can, allow that he can discuss the reward of reputation for justice. Glaucon allows this since Socrates has already defended justice by itself in the soul. Socrates indicates justice and injustice do not escape the notice of the gods, 
that the gods love the just and hate the unjust, and that good things come to those whom the gods love. Which is ironic, because this is Greek mythology we're talking about. (laughs) 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 Where the gods suck. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, I love you, God, but I'm having a tantrum! (laughs) (laughs) Ah, Stop, 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 I'm gonna have an affair with you! (laughs) (laughs) But I'm a horse! (laughs) Does it matter? (laughs) Let's go. Greek mythology. (laughs) Socrates lists various rewards for the just and punishments for the unjust unjust in this life. He proceeds to tell the myth of Ur that is supposed to illustrate reward and punishment in the afterlife. The souls of the dead go up through an opening on the right if they were just, or below through an opening on the left if they were unjust. The various souls discuss their rewards and punishments. Socrates explains that the multiples by which peoples are punished and rewarded. The souls of the dead are able to choose their next lives and then they are reincarnated. Socrates ends the discussion by prompting Glaucon and the others to do well, both in this life and in the afterlife. And And that's it. And... It's really, it's, it's cool they're talking about this stuff with the forms, because I actually do remember this part as well from, again, a course. I don't remember mm. which one. But basically, it's the, it's the difference between, because the form of a couch is basically, when I say to you, couch, or even red couch, like you have it in your mind, a picture of a couch, mm. right? It, it isn't really any couch that's ever actually existed, because whatever you remember is slightly wrong. Like in, infinitesimally slightly wrong. Yep. Um, so the idea of a couch is the form of one, but no couch actually exists that matches that form. Mm. Then there's the particular couch, which is the actual thing in front of you that you're seeing um, that you can describe, and then the painting or the poetry version, um, mm. which is kind of like a representation that can't actually be the thing. Um, so there, it's like basically that everything has multiple forms because, yeah. Yeah, because by you saying the couch, you can be like the couch, and I could have my couch. Yeah, exactly. Like it'll it'll suit certain rules. Like it'll be within some criteria, but really, there's a pretty broad spectrum of what we could all be seeing in our heads, no matter how many details we try and describe. um, Mm. Yeah, it won't be exactly the same. Um, uh, But yeah, just um, just to um sort of categorize into uh three sections of like what i guess it was all really about like i don't think it needs too much of a gigantic wrap wrap up other than the things that were good on it but the republic is essentially about like both the ethics and politics sort of being part of the two parts of the same coin sort of a Mm. thing Mm. um which which i guess is probably a big thing because i mean in in what i'm trying to remember of like what little sort of existed before the Greeks, which stuff did, obviously, and mm. people did write about things and talk about things. There there wasn't such a massive focus on the things mirroring each other, like it being one big organism. Because even, like, I, actually, while I was in Paris, I went and saw the Code of Hammurabi, which is, like, the oldest um, law text in the world. It's, like, the origin for our entire law code as well. Oh, wow. Um, which was basically... I think Hammurabi was Sumerian, but I don't know if that's true. It's Mm -hmm. one of those really early ones, um, or an Akkadian, maybe. But basically, it's this big black obelisk, and it's basically got these little rules etched on it, and it's basically the earliest law code that exists in the world. And they basically based Middle Eastern and then European law codes on it to begin with, and it's just been a modification ever since. Mm. Um, So... Like, obviously, stuff existed, but it's more basically saying we should have justice, we should have standardized rules, these are the things and these are the punishments kind of thing. Mm. It's not to this extent. It's not to the extent of the Republic where it's basically saying the whole thing is a big ethical mirror for itself, that this needs to look into this and to this, and then together it'll all work really nicely. So, yeah, no, it's really good to bring it up, Sean. I think it's actually a really good text to look at, despite the eugenics insanity and everything else. It's, it's still... <laughs> yeah. It's really good. Yeah. yeah, a lot of what they what it says is 
still very relevant, which yeah. is interesting. Yeah. yeah, I find like I found what I personally found is like the descriptions of like the systems and like the the way that people work are pretty like you know they're pretty bang on. Yeah, like, you, know, you can sort of see how it happens, but obviously like everything's sort of based on how things were like that many years ago. Like the best thing about um, modern day society is the fact that we don't have to worry about neighboring cities coming and like pillaging us for all our good commodities. You know what I mean? So like that's sort of been erased from, from our like localized sort of thinking. So, um, but I think, I think the main thing that I've taken from it is, is almost like if, if you were to have this like ideal society or, or to like grow that sort of a thing, it's, it's like, wow, it's like, it's, it's just as much of a challenge back then to bring it into existence <laughs> as it is now. But it's something that sort of like, yeah, we, as we all probably agree, it has to be sort of like voted towards and then like yeah shifted into existence it's like a glacial process where you kind Mm. of have to very slowly push this massive group towards thinking the same thing and obviously it takes a very long time or you kill everyone over the age of 10 (laughs) (laughs) it just said Sorry. Don't put food or water or shelter or anything, but just you haven't technically murdered them. <laughs> but in a global society, that means what? We put them on the moon? <laughs> I say them, us. We put yeah. us on the moon. No, no, we put them in space suits and put them in space. So we haven't technically killed them. <laughs> oh, 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 my God. Listeners, I just feel compelled to let you know that Daniel's dog just walked into frame and it's wearing a jumper. <laughs> Got it. Oh, yeah, cute. Marty has a coat on because he gets cold. And uh, he's staring at the new kitten who is up on the bench because he's very interested. (laughs) What does the kitten think of the dog? Uh, He's paranoid of the little dog. So um, it's a slow process. They got him yesterday. So slowly they're going to get used to each other. But he's like two months old or three months old. So (laughs) you get a new little best friendy fur baby. Yep, absolutely. (laughs) <laughs> anyway, back to Plato. No, no, that's good. Episode done. Mentioned <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. now on to 15 I, it, minutes of cats. <laughs> I, it, is, it is funny, though, that, like, yeah, you're right. It, it's a much smaller city. Um, and, like, they're still having all the exact same problems. I mean, this city would be that they're describing. I mean, they, must, they basically have to be talking about Athens, really. Mm. Um, 100%. And, and it would have like a few, maybe tens of thousands, mm-hmm. like twenty or thirty thousand people, maybe, because it was a really big city at its peak, obviously. But that's for those days, big. Um, God, mm. I'd love to see what like Eltham or something would be like <laughs> if you plopped it in the ancient. Like, oh, it's this grand metropolis. <laughs> for everyone listening, uh, Eltham is the small town where a lot of us grew up. Uh, the small suburb, sorry, where a lot of us grew up. I, uh, I, I live there. I, I, I still haven't grown up yet. That's <laughs> <laughs> close, and so is Carla. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it's, it's funny to think of them having the same problems but being so small, I suppose. Mm. Um, yeah, no, awesome. Good, good yeah. Yeah, yeah, and because, like, another, another thing is, like, um, it's, really, it's really hard, it's really hard, especially for us to accurately know what they were talking about or like metaphorically speaking or what he actually knew knew or believed that he knew sort of a thing about like the soul and whatnot yeah Mm. and this is the problem that concepts and words and everything have changed so much that they can say something and we think oh they mean this just like with everything but we Mm. completely misunderstand what they're saying because the use of words has changed Yeah, yeah yeah and Exactly. And who knows how many times this has been translated? Exactly, exactly. Because like nine times you might be like soul, and you're like, oh yeah, consciousness. Oh yeah, consciousness. Oh yeah, and then yep. you're like, and then it's like God, God, God. And you're like, oh. and yeah. So it's like, oh. mm. yeah. And then it's, it's almost it's like, like, with, it's like with Chinese, God is just like this force that exists. It's not really conscious. It's just a yeah. force that affects the world. But they call it God still. It's yeah. it's weird. Yeah, that's why. That's why. Like when it goes, like if you go into like soul and consciousness and God, like that to me, it's almost like that. That God represents almost like the influence of like built up emotions, 
that it has on the on the thing and it feels like it's this overwhelming thing and because we all have that single point of consciousness we all have that same relation to that emotion therefore god can be that greater than all of us it exists outside all of us if it affects mm. everyone sort of a mm. thing but mm. i guess anything you're talking about that's kind of more emotion based and really kind of based on ideas that are really intangible it's going to be really difficult to put words to it Mm. 100%. Which, yeah, always hinders discussions. Like, how do you find a word for something that you can't conceive properly? Yeah. Yeah. And then then you've already got, like, the whole fact that we're all trying to understand something together, but we've all experienced nature versus nurture, you know, with the genetics and growing up and all that sort of stuff. So it's really hard to, yeah, actually find that common... Those, that that common analogy, and especially when you throw in soul and um, religion and gods into it, that have an, ex- an exponential amount of um, worldly influence. Yeah, it's going to be hard to put yeah. the nail of the head. Yeah, absolutely. But I'm glad that um, I'm glad that Plato existed and defended justice, even though he was a little bit a little bit crazy. Mm. Awesome. But yeah, that's pretty much all I have to um, do on the matter. I was like, yeah, I was, I was, I was glad that I was able to um, digest all that. I'm definitely going to become a better person as a result. Yeah, I've thanks already, for bringing I've, it to I've us. already become a better person. I've learned the merits of eugenics, and I'm going to go forward from this day learning that fact. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Let's glad. Well, guys. <laughs> Daniel, in the next... 15 years is going to become um, managing director of the Australian Olympic Committee. <laughs> <laughs> Finding all satisfactory Australians is going to be the slogan. Satisfactory <laughs> 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 uh, breeding, breeding the future. Yeah, yeah. Breeding yep. the future. We breed all our own athletes. We don't actually hire anyone anymore. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's terrible, Shannon. You're a bad person. <laughs> oh, I'm just getting, I'm just getting you on, um, on other countries level. <laughs> I just no want, to, I just want Australian Yao Ming's born. That's all. Fair enough. <laughs> anyway, my name has been Daniel. I've been Carla. And what is your name now, now Daniel? <laughs> <laughs> it is now Dunberg. I don't know. I can't think of anything good up. Dunberg. <laughs> Dunberg. There we go. I was Daniel. Now Dunberg. And I'm and I'm Wiggle and Shannon. <laughs> See you next week. <laughs>